I'm Chelsea Parker. I'm a freelance fiddle player, and this is The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and if you are new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk with one of Nashville's finest producers and engineers. We get to talk with Bob Bullock. We'll talk to him about the pivotal role Kenny Rogers played in his career, what it was like to work with John Snyder to release a song a week for a year, and we'll take a deep dive into his time working with Mutt Lang to produce some of Shania Twain's greatest projects. Now, when I say Bob is one of Nashville's finest producers, I mean Bob is truly one of the industry's finest. I've had the pleasure to work alongside Bob for several years, and I learned so much during that time. We've remained friends ever since, and I can't wait to talk with him tonight. So if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. And now let's get started. Bob, sir, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Jay. You, my friend, are probably the most referenced person on this show. Every guest we have on here talks about you at one point or another. So it's good to finally get you back on the show and get to hear some of these stories that we keep talking about. <laughs> oh, that's great. At first, when you said that, I wasn't sure how to react, you know. Oh, no, trust me, none of it's good. So <laughs> yeah, make okay. sure we have time. Give you a chance to clear your name a little bit. Yeah, okay, there you go. All right, well, let's just go ahead and get started. Can you tell me what it was about working with Kenny Rogers that was so pivotal in your career? Okay. Uh, working with Kenny Rogers led me directly to Nashville, and that was unplanned. So, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was working in Los Angeles. In fact, actually working up in Northern California with the Doobie Brothers. And um, there's a history behind that. The studios that Kenny Rogers purchased, Lion Share, had originally been um, ABC Records and ABC Studios. And I had worked there, so I had a uh, a history with you know those particular studios. So I got a call from somebody that was there when Kenny Rogers was taking over that business and asked to join the staff. So did that. It was a, a wonderful experience. So met everybody from the first edition. Terry Williams from the first edition was managing the studio for Kenny, and Ken Vassy was running his publishing and. At that time, I was really had my sights set on, you know, going up to Northern California, to San Francisco, to the Bay Area. And through Kenny, I um, just started meeting people from Nashville. People from Nashville would come in because that was was a home base for him on a lot of his earlier records. And started getting calls really because of that to come to Nashville. And I just fell in love with it and moved here in 1984. Was there much of a difference between working there and working in Nashville? Yeah, there was a lot of differences, honestly. 
Well, one thing I would say, you know, Nashville has always been a, a songwriter community and a real small condensed area for the studio musicians. So not, not unlike Los Angeles in that regard, but the Nashville way of making country music was very efficient. Budgets, you know, were a lot tighter in the late seventies or I guess it was early eighties when I first started coming here. So the one thing I noticed right away when I came was that I thought I'd, you know, learned a few things, but I had to really uh, get my chops more together for speed, you know, accuracy, being ready for everybody. And I think we had a little more laid back way of working in in Los Angeles, but uh, it was exciting, you know? So I uh, liked all the artists. I liked uh, everybody at the studios. So, So really, you know, I've never looked back. Do you feel like Nashville still works that way? Uh, to some extent, Nashville has a way of creating music that is very efficient. Studio musicians, singers, producers, songwriters, everyone, it's a pretty well-oiled machine, you know. But when I came here, I also saw there was a great opportunity for evolving, I guess. So uh, the Nashville studios were definitely, to me, you know, behind the times of Los Angeles and New York, especially. But there was a kind of in that early 80s, there was a surge of popularity and the labels that had Nashville divisions were putting more money into making the records, which gave money for the recording studios to improve. And in those days I was working not exclusively, but mostly for Jimmy Bowen. And Jimmy Bowen had come from Los Angeles from uh, producing Sinatra and Dean Martin, the whole Rat Pack era. And so he was he was really instrumental in getting more get higher budgets and more uh, technology. So about the time that I came to Nashville was this kind of guess the start of the digital age of multi-track digital. And so there was a leapfrog thing that went on really in the early eighties where the Nashville studios, in my opinion, were jumping ahead. So it was a real exciting time, honestly. Well, you mentioned that, and I know you've had a very long career over 40 years at this point. Mm -hmm. Were you talking about the opportunities in Nashville when you first arrived? What were some of those opportunities and how do you see the, the area progressing? Uh, I guess the way I would, I would say for me personally, coming in and working for Jimmy Bowen, all the music for country, all the, all the, yeah, all the music for the country format, country uh, genre really was done in Nashville. I mean, there were very few exceptions back in, in that seventies and eighties period. And I started coming here in 81. So I realized that it was really kind of a small group. I managed to fit into the, system, fortunately for me, but there was a small group of us really that were creating this whole whole genre. And with the technology playing, in my opinion, an, an advancement of new uh, uh, recording consoles, new tape machines, newer outboard gear, things like that, it made it exciting for me. And uh, another thing I didn't anticipate is my background in music has always been what I call more organic stuff. I mean, I recording live musicians, recording orchestral dates. That's what I did before I came into Nashville. As music was starting to 
to change with more programming and, um, you know, drum machines, things of that sort in Los Angeles and New York. And I was going back and forth some, so it wasn't like I, you know, left all that totally behind. It was just, you know, I would go back and forth some, but Nashville remained as this place where six or eight musicians would come into the studio and we would record live. That was perfect for me. It wasn't something I anticipated happening, but I was able to continue doing what I really loved. You might say my forte, even to this day, really more in Nashville than I would probably in other other communities. I think that's where you shine. I've had the opportunity to see you work for some time. And I think when you have a live band in front of you, six to eight guys that are all playing at the same time and you've got all those moving pieces, I think that's really where you stand out. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I, I feel that everybody kind of finds what their comfort zone is, what excites them. That's for me. So I'm as, as crazy as it might sound, because there's a lot of tension that comes with all that orchestra dates or rhythm sections. It's exciting. And I guess just like being in front of house for a live concert, you know, it's crazy intense. But if you're cut out for that, it's also probably very fulfilling. What do you find to be the challenging times? Oh, <laughs> Tr- trying to sometimes be the calming uh, component of the team. You know, the producer, I felt that quite a lot in the, in the arts, you know, in, you know, you've been, you've participated in a lot of records, a lot of music. I mean, the passion for all this creates a lot of uh, tension, pressure, you know, uh, sometimes, the intent is always everyone wants to make the best record they can do, write the best song they can do, best performance, best vocal, all that. But in doing that, it can get, you know, kind of intense. And it felt like uh, sometimes a, as a producer and an engineer, I have to you know, try to be the calming <laughs> force so, so that we actually get from point A to point B. Right. No, that makes sense. So what were the key lessons you learned in California that helped you out when you first moved to Nashville? Well, I had a lot of experience with doing all, you know, these big bands and and orchestral stuff and all that. And I had, I had a lot of experience with uh, different consoles, SSLs, APIs, Neves, Tridents and all that. And uh, all the tape formats. So, uh, I would say that some of the studios were a little bit kind of lagging behind in that at that period of time in Nashville. So I think I was able to help be part of bringing some newer ideas. Like here, this is available to us. If we had this console, we could do, you know, these things that you haven't been able to do before, for example. So, yeah, that just was really challenging and exciting for me. I felt like I was part of seeing this, this, uh, genesis of nashville growing no i can understand that too if you come from a place that's a little bit ahead in technology wise it kind of gives you an edge not only to know how to use the equipment but to know what's coming in the future for nashville and be part of it technology is still to this day advancing and it's advancing at a fast rate mm-hmm. what are the pivotal moments that really made a difference to you that really stand out technology wise oh boy well, well, thankfully, I've always embraced change. <laughs> if if you don't embrace well, change, right? I, yeah, I don't, I don't think, uh, yeah, I don't think you're cut out for this stuff, you know, because it, it's it's <laughs> changed so so dramatically. 
pivotal points. Let's see. Well, for many years, you know, I was working with analog consoles, analog gear, microphones. Some technologies change, but basically not not as dramatic. But you know, analog tape. So the only things that were really changing for me for maybe 15 years were going from eight track to 16 track to 24 track to locking up to 24 tracks. So the, the evolution, just kind of like watching how things have changed since we've had the smartphones, you know, the evolution, things didn't change that rapidly. You know, there might be some new outboard gear, some advancements in a, you know, large format console. But for many years, I guess going into the early 80s, there was a lot of consistency. Once we got into the digital tape formats, the 32 tracks, the Sony Dash Machines, 48 tracks. So I guess going from analog to the multi-track digital machines was one pivotal point. Then, Then maybe the next thing that I recognized that was changing things dramatically was the potential for home studio stuff, ADATs, things like that, that people could record multi-tracks at home and they could put several machines together. And then probably somewhere in the mid-90s with Pro Tools, the uh, uh, you know digital workstation stuff. So, so those to me are the pivotal changes, going from analog to multi-track digital to then, you know, finally where we are now, uh, just you know, like Pro Tools, Cubase, Logic, and all that. Do you enjoy that transition of technology? Uh, I, I do to some extent. I mean, what, what I've found, especially as I started getting into education, teaching, and everything, is I personally don't do too much differently on the recording side of things than I've always have. The analog tape has gone away for me for the most part. So Pro Tools specifically, or, or that type of recording, you know, has become the tape machine. But it really still to this day, generally when I work, I'm working at a studio that has a large analog console, you know, mostly Pro Tools. Pro Tools is our tape machine and the same outboard gear that's been around for decades. And then the thing that's changed really dramatically is, you know, my home studio is all digital. It's all in the box. I'm a new window user. I have a Pro Tools system also. And my preference for mixing is new window, but certainly recognize that, you know, all the major companies have, you know, stellar products today. So yeah, the mixing side, the post side editing and all that is completely different. I used to cut tape, analog tape, and those days are long gone. But for me personally, the recording side is very much the same. Now, I'm not really a programmer for my, you know, friends, my peers that are doing program music uh, and all that. That's that's a whole other component to this. So you have worked on thousands of projects. But before we get to that point, I'd like you to talk about one of your more recent projects. You were working with John Snyder. And for those who don't know, he played Bo Duke in Dukes of Hazard. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what it was like working with him and what that project was like? Uh, it's been over about a you know three year period of yeah, three years period of time I guess. Uh, I had originally worked with John soon after they ended the uh, Dukes of Hazard 
show, which I guess was late 80s. I don't remember exactly. But after he um, left the show, they, they finished the Dukes of Hazard. He's always been a, a great singer. I mean, he's a, he's a very talented singer. And so he um, came to Nashville and landed a record deal with MCA Records. Jimmy Bowen signed him. And right out of the shoot, his first album, you know, we started having number one records with him. So he was doing, you know, really well. I couldn't tell you how many records I did with him through that period of time, but we did quite a few. And couldn't even tell you the timeline of when that changed, but he started going back into doing his acting career more. He had shows like Smallville series he was doing, for example. He was kind of rocking between his singing career and his uh, TV and, and movie career. So I think he was leaving the music kind of just sitting a little bit on hold for a while. And I got a call right out of the blue uh, in 2017 that he wanted to go in and record some new stuff because he still had a very large music fan base to go along with all his television and film. And he had promised his uh, fans that he was going to release a song every week of the year for 2018. It's insane. That's a monumental thing. So the, so the phone call went from me thinking, oh, wow, John, haven't seen you in a long time. We did one album between the MCA records and then in that period that he had produced independently. But when he called me, I thought, oh, we're going to probably go in and cut a couple of songs. So he said, well, uh, we're going to be recording 52 songs to be released next year. So this was in, I think, September of 2017. Okay. So... Luckily, he and Paul Lime, who was co-producing the project with him, is also an incredible drummer, great talent. They had already been finding material and kind of brainstorming this. So in, um, I think it was in October, we started recording to get some stuff that we could have delivered starting week one of January 2018. And then we just kept recording throughout the year. So, uh, by the end of the year, we, you know, we had all 52 songs done. And we also, in that year, did a Christmas album, which I think is really a great record. And we redid his greatest hits and made an acoustic version from the MCA greatest hits, made, re-recorded that. So I think in 27, starting 2017, 2018, 2019, I think there was 11 albums <laughs> we did. They weren't simple productions. I mean, this was big time stuff, big bands, big productions. And uh, it was a lot of fun. That is crazy. Mm -hmm. When you went in to do the acoustic album, how many people were playing on it? I mean, it wasn't just guitar vocal. What was the instrumentation like? Oh, it was it was drums. When I say acoustic, it wasn't quite his early stuff with MCA was in the late 80s, early 90s, whenever that period of time was. It was little bigger productions of, you know, more electric layering parts, things like the electric guitar, maybe some strings, some synthesizer stuff. So it was, they were the productions that were, I guess, appropriate at that time, you know, for a full studio band record. So our greatest hits, you know, that's, that's more uh, greatest hits still, I think is what it was called. But it's it, the acoustic stuff is... Just um, drums, bass, acoustic guitars, piano, vocals, just a different 
version of those songs, a lighter, a lighter version of the songs. Yeah. I'd like to hear that one. I don't think I've heard that. Yeah. John's, you know, pretty incredible talent, really. I mean, he, he can sing a, a lot of different styles and he loves everything that he does. So it's, it's all been, been fun, but it's always great to take a, a you know, a record and then just, have the same artist do a different version of that, you know, and in our case, doing something that's more acoustic. It's kind of like an unplugged thing, I guess. Well, very cool. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. Can you tell us what it was like working with Shania Twain? Ah, uh, Shania Twain. Well, yeah, those were good times, good records for sure. I had worked with Mutt Lang on a project prior to, to Shania Twain, an album with an artist, her name was Stevie Vaughn. And, I think she was actually, she was touring with Elton John, I believe, in those days. But I got to know, you know, Mutt a little bit and met Shania. She had already done a record here in Nashville, I think on Polydor. And there's a whole long story to all that, but Mutt met Shania and they started collaborating, dating and, you know, writing together. And so, uh, so I met, met Shania really through that period of time. So uh, where she'd come over and hang out with us at the studio. We were working on a different project. And then that led to him producing her next album. And it was called The Woman in Me. And that mostly was done in Canada, The Woman in Me record. And uh, it it just took off. I mean, I think, you know, I don't remember how many hits there were, but uh, I think it went to like 10 or 12. I think it was like 12 million units so the next record was the come on over record and that one i don't think we did any of that in canada so that was recorded here in nashville and then also um uh, in new york at mud mud studio in upstate new york in different studios here in nashville and that album was pretty intense and pretty amazing in so many ways because she had a lot of uh, success with this woman and me record. It was her second album, but they didn't really have enough songs that were hits and everything to, to go tour with. So they decided to record, was it 16? I think it was 16 songs. I don't think it was 19. I don't remember exactly now, but I think it was 16 songs on the come on over record. And the idea was to, since they had so much momentum to uh, get those songs on the radio and get it out there so that when she opened her tour, which was from the come on over record between the three albums, especially the, you know, the, the latter two, you know, she wouldn't need an opening act. Basically, you know, she wouldn't have to open. She would be, the lead and it, and it worked. I think there was, I think there was nine singles off the come on over record, which was kind of unheard of. It's an impressive way of doing it. Yeah. And so, uh, so they just, you know, uh, it was a really fun record to work on. It was a great to work with, with mud on that the songs are great. He and, he and Shania wrote all of them. Then that led to uh, the up album, which was kind of, un well, very unique in that, the uh, the Woman and Me album was pretty traditional as far as it was it was new music by you know Shania and Mutt and it was it was uh, well produced it was a great record it had great songs and hits when we got to the Come On Over record Mutt 
was doing there was there was more variations of mixes and stuff for different markets and everything and they they really did a lot with the come on over record for the up record it took it to a whole nother level it was it was kind of like you know in film the lord of the rings or something it was like we had three versions of of the up album so there was a version that was kind of the more organic country record i think that was the was it the green album, the blue album? And then there was a, the red one, I think, was the one that was the all the same song, same vocals, but more pop production, okay? And then the third variation of that was the same songs that I had nothing to do with those at all. He had a couple of uh, producers in um, India, I think, that made a world music version of those songs, so really, when that album came out, it went to three very different markets, you know, country, pop, and and world music. Now, that's very strategic. Was that his plan to be that strategic with the releases? You know, that I, I couldn't answer. I would say that his camp, you know, Mutt's machine of, you know, uh, his uh, track record speaks for itself. You know, if you look up Mutt's discography, some very, very monumental records by a lot of big artists. I just think that the time was was good for uh, where sales were with CDs and radio, and this was before streaming, but I just think they, whoever came up with him as a team or whatever, it was pretty brilliant. Her first tour was a huge success too. Oh, that whole thing sounds like a very good plan. I mean, whoever thought of it was very smart for doing so. Yeah, definitely. There's not enough information about Mud out there. I mean, he doesn't do many interviews. He doesn't talk to many people. But he does have a, a very particular reputation of being very hardworking. Mm-hmm. Did you find any of that in the studio with him? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement, Jay. But, you know... I'm trying to be nice, Bob. Yeah, I, I'm actually... But I'm, I'm, I like that. See, that, that's the thing. You, you have to... You have to know where you where you fit in on things. So I, my early days of engineering at ABC Records, I was assisting Roger Nichols on Steely Dan Records. You know, another great engineer. Oh yes, yeah. The Roger Roger was brilliant. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from a lot of people. I was very very blessed. But yeah, he he was great. That whole experience with working with uh, mostly was Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, but Steely Dan. I mean, you know, we could do a whole we could do 10 segments just on Steely Dan records, you know, that everything was so meticulously done. It, everything was at such a slow, when I talk about LA, I'm not trying to make it sound like it was a lazy pace. It wasn't that at all. It was a lot of intensity. It's just that there was a lot of time to go over things and go over things. So as an engineer, you had a lot of time to get sounds because they weren't just going to, you know, come in and just bang out a track in, in one take and all that. So Steely Dan helped me be ready for for working with Mutt Lang. <laughs> I guess the, because Mutt's very, very meticulous with his work. I, I absolutely admire his uh, passion and uh, stamina and uh, just, you know, his, his attention to detail, you know. But if you're not geared for that, you wouldn't have a good time. Right. And I, I appreciate it. I like that kind of work. But can you give us an example of what we're kind of alluding to? I could probably give you a lot. Well, okay, I'll give you a good example. <laughs> uh, 
on the Come On Over record, we did a bunch of guitar overdubs with uh, uh, Dan Huff in New York. And uh, days and days, you know, of, of guitar overdubs and everything, everything was great. And Mutt called me in, um, uh, Man, I Feel Like a Woman was the song. Mutt called me, I was back in Nashville and working on something else. And he said, you know, the, the song, Man, I feel, like, I feel Like a Woman, I don't really think that the solo is exactly what I want it to be. It's just a, a short little, you know, I don't know, depending on how you four count, bars. I guess, a little yeah, four bar thing, you know, now it wasn't a long solo. And uh, Dan did a great job, of course, like he, like he always does, you know. But Mutt just was thinking he wanted to hear something different. So um, he wanted a slide guitar on it. So we got Larry Byram, who's also, you know, fantastic guitar player, very accomplished slide guitar player. And we went into Emerald Studios and Mutt and Shania were had engagements in New York. They had something they were doing in New York, in Manhattan. So um, we rigged up a talkback system from the hotel they were at. And uh, Larry came in and we set him up, you know, and we had him do just countless variations with Mutt coaching him of, you know, different ideas and lines and notes to redo the uh, solo, which was probably about a three-hour session. And then I sent those back on safety reels. You know, I sent all the uh, takes we had done of the slide parts and the punch-ins and all that back to Mutt. And then he spent several hours from what I was told. I wasn't on, I wasn't with him on that, putting together the, the two uh, guitar players. So part of the solo was Dan Huff and part of the solo was Larry Byram. So I don't know, maybe 12 hours easily of studio time went into just doing that. I mean, that would just be one example, but then you hear the end result. It's just brilliant. You know, it's just, it's all so perfect. So to me, it's always worth all that. That's why that's never been a problem for me because it's the end result that matters. He just wanted to hear something unique and that's what it ended up being. Does he understand the pressure he's putting on people at that moment? Uh, you know, I've worked with Mud a lot, you know, over the years and, and, I wouldn't really even call it pressure. I mean, what I would say is he, he's very, he's always been very pleasant to work with. Okay. But it, it, it's, it's, it's tough on you as far as the, um, it, I guess the intensity isn't like high pressure. Anyone's upset, just, just doing things over and over again. But I always found him to, even with, you know, all the musicians we work with, let them tell him if they needed a break or, you know, Hey, I need to, walk away from this he was always very patient around me on all that so and and me included because you know sometimes you're working on the same part over and over and over again i mean all you know sometimes all day and it's tough on a, mu a musician that's just getting a little numb to it they have to get away from it same thing for you know an engineer but he was always so pleasant about it to me it was okay whatever we have to do Everyone was getting paid. Everyone was treated well. And uh, the end result kind of uh, says it all to me. Absolutely. What was your most memorable moment from that? Uh, I mean, there's so many. It, it was it was fun working on their studio in New York, you know, with their, their home studio, which was pretty over the top. So I spent about a month there with them, and that was 
that was pretty exciting. But, you know, his his productions and records, you know, kind of have gone all over the world. I mean, you know, even for the up record, I wasn't part of that part, that part of it, but they did uh they did string dates in Milan, Italy, and you know, kind of traveled, you know, the world, you know, making these records. But um uh, on the up record, he took myself and a group to um, Nassau, to the Bahamas, and we um, did did a lot of overdubs. That was about three or four weeks, also. Yeah, that was that was a really exciting time. It's kind of like we just all camped out. Was it all work? Yeah, it was for me. It wasn't for the musicians because everybody was kind of uh, switching off of myself and uh, myself. Uh, you know, it put it this way. Uh, us engineers, you know, we're kind of going round the clock. It was very long right. hours, nine in the morning <laughs> till eight morning. The, the whole experience started with uh, a brownout after having everything all ready to go on on a Sunday, coming in Monday morning, and uh, the Pro Tools uh, Pro Tools card had, had fried during the night. How did we rectify that? Uh, well, luckily for me, you know, Mutt was very understanding of things. And uh, I had to call him at 9 a.m. and tell him that uh, even though everything was working perfect, check, double check, triple checked, and all that, that Pro Tools, you know, was giving us a, an unhappy face. And we had all these double scale musicians that had flown in that we were supposed to start at 10 a.m. So all he said to me is, well, just do whatever it takes. So uh, I guess I could tell that story now. We uh, um, <laughs> we had no, we were in Nassau and there was nowhere to get things like that. We called England, we called everywhere. And so in Miami, we, were, we finally figured out through talking to tech support and everything, what, you know, what was wrong. We had a couple of cards that had fried. So in Miami, we had to purchase these new cards and get them shipped to us. Well, it wasn't that far in miles to get them shipped, but it was a different country. So it was supposed to go through customs. Okay. And all that. So we, uh, we had to get somebody to get on a plane with these cards in a suitcase and get there and, and then retrieve the cards so we could get them in the, uh, thing is we didn't have time to go through customs would have been like delayed a week or something for something like that you know so we got that all taken care of and believe it or not because we had been so ready staying up all night the night before and all that by two o'clock the band was in the room recording so it was it was a frantic like four hours <laughs> that's how Can we picture somebody trying to get cards like that onto an airplane now no, it wouldn't happen today no, those, those <laughs> in those days it was still a lot looser in those days, but yeah, but you know, those are things that we didn't even, you know, I didn't even anticipate at first. Like, okay, well, just send us the, the cards, you know, what, you know, it's not that far to Miami, but it wasn't that simple, you know, so. Right. Not that easy to just pull that. But we got it done. Mutt was happy, so. All right. Well, let's go ahead and shift gears one more time here. Can you tell me what it was like working with the tubes? The tubes, okay. That's that's going back even a little further. Um, yeah, but what a cool band and album, and I mean, just they are amazing. Oh, they they were. I, I first worked with their uh, uh, with them on their "What Do You Want from Live" record. I think it was called. That would have been the seventies. I was at Kendon Recorders. They had recorded some shows. I forgot the venue. Now I was in England somewhere. I forgot what the venue was, 
and Peter Henderson was producing them. And he, uh, he was uh, a protege of uh, Jeff Emmerich. Peter was, and Peter and I were the, you know, about the same age. Actually, we're both like 22, you know, I guess it was. And he was, he went from working with Jeff Emmerich and the band Super Tramp to, he was uh, producing the tubes and it was a live record we did. They recorded all these shows. They brought all the tapes to uh, Los Angeles and, and uh, we edited together and mixed the album um, at, uh, at Kendon Recorders. And uh, so that was my first, you know, time working with them and the whole band. And it was all live. I mean, it was like they, they kept trying to do overdubs and everything. And the record company was emphatic, it was A&M. And uh, they were emphatic. They wanted to be able to say it was a live recording. And so it was a live recording. It was a very good record. They were really great musicians. But typically, you know, of anyone, when as we were assembling these shows from, I think it was five nights, you know, they wanted to redo parts and stuff. And so we would let them do it. And then the record company wouldn't let us use any of that. You know, <laughs> did the band know? I don't remember that now. I don't remember, but but it was it was a it was a great great record, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And we you know assemble. I always loved doing live records like that and assembling different shows and audience responses. And you know, those days everything was so labor intensive. I mean, we spent weeks putting together you know the recording, even for it to be all be live, and. Uh, yeah, there's some other little side stories I could tell you about that. But then jump forward to um, while I was working at uh, uh, Lion Share Studios, several years later, David Foster uh, started producing the tubes. And uh, I think the album he did before I worked with them again with Umberto Gatica was The Completion Backward Principle. Also a great record, great production songs and all that so um so they came in i think the tracks some of a lot of the tracks that were already recorded i think when they started the uh the album we're talking about it had she's a beauty on it and that was called from the inside i think i had worked a lot with umberto gatique also another great engineer brilliant i learned a lot from him by then in those days I, you know, Umberto was even throwing me work, you know, when he was double booked. So even on that particular record the, uh, the tubes, uh, we were working in a couple of studios simultaneously. And so Umberto might be, you know, in one studio doing overdubs and I was in another studio with one of the other guys doing overdubs. And then, um, we mixed the album at studio in studio a at lion share. And, and on that part of it, I assisted Umberto. But yeah, they were a lot of fun, real creative. They were all art students. They were they were all artists. You know, they they did their own artwork for their records. I mean, they talented musicians and and you know they painted murals. They did all this. It's a really really creative group. So when they're in the studio, is it different than Nashville? Do they play as a band live, or do they do their basic tracks and then overdub everything? Uh. My LA experiences, and that—that's where I had to really change gears a lot for Nashville. But then I did embrace it. But you know, the records that we're talking about now, and then also working with Mutt Lang, the same thing, really. There's a spontaneity in Nashville of making country music, specifically country music, and and I and I embrace it. I love it. it it's it's not speed for the sake of speed. It's 
getting everything in there, getting an arrangement worked out and recording it, capturing it before you get past it and lose it. It's a feel thing. It's a, you know, a mojo thing, you know, with, with country music. All the records I did in Los Angeles prior and since, you know, or even in Nashville with, you know, maybe other genres of music were more of a, you would bring a whole band in, you know, most of the time and get things started. But then, yeah, there, there would be a lot more time, bigger budgets, more time to spend revisiting guitar solos, revisiting parts, adding things, subtracting things. In the days of like Steely Dan, everything, cutting entire tracks and having them fantastic and then decide they want to make a few changes uh, and then going in with a band and re recording them completely. So we did a lot of those things too. And you have to keep in mind that, you know, until like Pro Tools, you know, and, and that that way of working, that type of uh, editing and, and all, you know, we had, you know, very, very limited uh, technology for a lot of things. I mean, you couldn't just cut and paste stuff. I mean, you could edit. I mean, some of us got pretty good at editing tape and everything, but you couldn't undo and redo and move everything around. And you couldn't just, change tempos and keep the same pitch. You know, we had to vary speed things. And so there were so many things that we had to recut stuff over. If you want to change the key, you're not going to just go and pitch in time and change the key. So, yeah, I'd just say that it's not really so much maybe a New York, LA, Nashville thing. It's probably more of genres of music, more pop type stuff, R&B and everything. Maybe we, you know, just spent more time chipping at the marble you know. so when you're working with a band like the tubes is there a lot of experimentation then yeah oh yeah the first record i worked on with them i only worked on two records with them they were both really fun very different what i did with peter that was capturing you know editing together real work on that was assembling a live record so it wasn't it wasn't an experimentation it was like that, that was their live shows and we just put all that together and then mixed it from the inside record with David Foster. David Foster was, you know, he's a brilliant producer and he, he kind of kept everybody in, in the rails, you might say, but yeah, but all the musicians, you know, they all contributed and they had ideas and we tried different things. And so, uh, yeah, there's in just the kind of gets more pop stuff. There might be just more experimentation. You're creating more illusion. I remember Bruce Swedeen one time, you know, hopefully everybody knows who Bruce Swedeen was, Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones, fantastic engineer. I heard him say one time that there's kind of two basic styles of engineering and producing music. And one is capturing, you know, performances and the other one is creating illusion. So like the stuff they did with Michael Jackson was more like, trying different things and those of that because you're kind of creating more of an illusion you know a theatrical piece and then if you're going in and re recording um a country band george Strait or something it's more of like capturing just the moment and the spirit of the song and everything so you know when you're doing the theatrical stuff it definitely takes you to a lot of different experimentation that's a, a really good point too because we talk about a lot of the projects you've worked on and a lot of it comes from the engineering point of view, but you're also a, a producer. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what style of producing that you typically take on? 
Uh, I like working with bands a lot. I mean, even though a lot of my engineering credits certainly have been working with, you know, artists, I mean, you know, uh, entertainers and then with studio musicians. But I do like working with bands. Uh, this past year, I've been working with, with a band called uh, Union Gray based out of Denver, Colorado. And with just a few exceptions, they're really a self-contained band. Done some stuff with them with studio musicians, augmenting it also. I uh, just produced um, a couple songs with an artist out of uh, uh, oh Albuquerque, out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, that um, wrote these songs that are for, or a song specifically for a film that hopefully is in development through Netflix. And he wrote a title song for it called The Preacher and uh, came to me with you know, the song to produce that for the film and make it real um, visual and everything. So um, his name is Merv Aylesbury. So that was specifically for that. So my, I guess my forte, my interest is working with bands, you know, like organic stuff. Even most of the work I get from mixing even today is mostly, you know, people that have, you know, musicians, in front of microphones and things of that sort that's recorded. And that's kind of, that's kind of my uh, main format. I also um, produced and engineered a record with um, all studio musicians that was like, it was a self-contained band called the HMB players for high mountain breezes. And that's been getting really a lot of streaming. In fact, I was just looking the other day and, you know, we're up to over 400,000 streams on that, completely independent. And that was working with a band also, but the band is all studio musicians and singers that uh, Bruce Tarletsky, who uh, formed the label and gave us the means to uh, produce this record, co-wrote some songs, and then we also did some covers. But basically, we had the opportunity just to go in with these songs and make them our own recut the famous uh, Simon and Garfunkel Bridge Over Troubled Water, for example, and did a very different arrangement that I have to credit really to Chris Lusinger, uh, did, did the musical arrangements. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd encourage you to look that up because um, there's a lot of great musicians and singers on it. And we, we just got to go in there and like play in the sandbox. I think we made a good record. I'll have to check that one out. And Chris is awesome, too. I mean, he's just amazing. Mm -hmm. All right, sir. Well, we do this thing here we call Unsung Heroes, where we take a moment to shine the light on somebody who typically doesn't get that much credit. Do you have anybody who's worked behind the scenes for you or to support you that you'd like to shine a little light on? Oh, well, that, you know, that goes way back. I've, uh, you know, I, I guess I'll, I will go. I'll go way back playing guitar and bands in, in high school and everything. And I wanted to get into audio and engineering. It was, uh, it was very difficult to uh, break the doors down, you know? So I was, when I was old enough to drive, I started going to recording studios and knocking on doors and, you know, that doesn't get you too far, but I met uh, a gentleman. In fact, I just talked to him very recently. His name is Bob Diavola that was working for um, ABC records. And, uh, through a longer story, I was introduced to him. I was only 18 years old, I think. And uh, he invited me to come down to ABC Recording Studios and, uh, you know, just look around and everything. And, of course, 
I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do and, you know, where I wanted to be. So he told me I could come down anytime, you know, after hours, weekends, and he'd just put me in a studio with, you know, outtakes and things that I couldn't wreck. And he'd let me just play and kind of mentor me a little bit. And, you know, I don't think he realized that I was going to bring a sleeping bag and just camp out there, but I did. So we've stayed, you know, friends all these years and decades. He he went on to ABC television that since has retired from ABC television. And, uh, you know, as I said, we're, I just was in Los Angeles a couple of months ago and saw him and uh, uh, he's been here to my studio. But, uh, you know, along the way, Umberto Katika, um, Roger Nichols, Reggie Dozier, Barney Perkins, some of these names are on my uh, bio Roy Halley, they they were all engineers that I was fortunate enough to get to sit next to and watch. Al Schmidt, one of the best, you know, Bill States. Uh, the only one really is it's almost like a smaller list to say I never got to actually sit and work with Bruce Swedeen. And and there were maybe a few others, but I was very fortunate that I got to work with pretty much all the greats through the 70s and 80s. Now I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Bob is not only an amazing producer, he's a great mentor and a great friend. So please join me in giving him a big thanks for taking the time to share his stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzi.com slash episode 28. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So, if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.